Well, happy Easter. Um, We are taking a a short uh, break from our series in Luke's Gospel, um, and we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15 today. So uh, if you have a Bible with you, please turn there with me. Uh, If you haven't got a Bible, no worries, the words will appear on the screen behind me. Um, While you're finding it, uh, just to get you thinking, um, if you could ask one question today and get it answered what would you ask? If you could ask one question and get an answer, and the correct answer, I hasten to add, what would you ask? Why don't you just quickly turn to the person next to you or behind you, uh, share the question with them. You never know, they might actually have the answer. You could get it answered there and then. Uh, But what, what question would you ask if you were guaranteed you would get an answer? Turn to the person next to you, ask the question. Okay, that's probably enough. There are some people on their phones kind of just Googling it, seeing if they get an answer that way. All kinds of questions facing us right now. When's the weather going to improve? When are we going to move out of recession? Does science disprove God? Why does God allow suffering? Am I going to get that job? Can I sleep with my girlfriend or boyfriend? Will I get married? And to whom? Uh, These are issues that can take up a whole lot of mind space. We can debate them, we can get really very heated about them, there's a few kind of heated exchanges taking place. Even then, um, we can get frustrated at the lack of clarity. But in the end, all of these questions pale into insignificance alongside the issue that I want to address today. Now please, don't hear me wrong, I'm not looking to in any way dismiss the very real questions that you're grappling with right now, but I do want to refocus your attention onto the main thing, onto the thing of greatest importance. Let's get into it. 1 Corinthians 15, going to pick it up in verse 1. This is what the Apostle Paul has to say. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you, get this, as of first importance. So, everything else pretty much gets melted away here because Paul, who wrote the best part of half the New Testament, is going, of everything that I wrote, of everything that I talked about with you, of everything I tried to unpack and explain for you, let me give you what is of first importance. Let me address the biggest issue. Whatever whatever else you do, you've got to get this one thing right. Okay, so here we go. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, here it is, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Now, if you're relatively new to the church, this is really quite a strange idea. Christ died for our sin. I mean, what is sin? And who am I to tell you what sin is? Well, 
let me try and explain. Let me try and define what we're talking about here. If, if you strip it right back, sin is the elevation of anything other than God to ultimate. Sin is the elevation of anything other than God to the place of God in our lives. That's sin. You see, there's a creator God that made everything. He not only made everything, but he's ultimately aware of everything. So he's aware right now of everything at the macro level. He knows where every star is. He knows the orbits around the solar system that planets travel. He knows the the depths of the seas. He knows the height of every mountain in every mountain range, on every planet, in every solar system, in every corner of the universe. He knows it all at the macro level. He also knows it all at the micro level, every cell, every atom. He, He knows it all. He knows every thought. He knows what you are thinking right now. He, he knows every event, how those events play out into other events and lead into other events at every level of those events happening and how it flows throughout all of eternity. And he never gets a headache over any of it. I've got one just trying to think about all of that. And he made everything, air, ocean, stars, sex, marriage, children, family, everything for our enjoyment and for us to turn it all back to him in worship and glory to him. That's the reason, that's the explanation for everything. Now here's sin. Sin is when we take things given to us by God for our enjoyment and for his glory, and we make those things, we turn those things into ultimate things in our lives. We glory in them rather than in the God who gave them to us. So sin is when I say money is what I'm living for. Money is what my life's all about. It is what I want more than anything else. It's the sole purpose for my existence. It's not that money is evil in and of itself, but by making money ultimate, by making money the main thing I'm living for, I've fallen into sin. We do the same thing with sex. We can do the same thing with family. We can do the same thing with marriage. We can do the same thing with our job, with our career. That, those things are not ultimate. They're secondary. In His grace, God gives them to us for our enjoyment and to stir praise in us for him. So, what's God's just and right response when we take his creation, when we take all these things he's given us, we take the emotions he's given us, the passions he's given us, the the, the love he's given us. Instead of laying all of those things on him, Instead, we lay it on our job, or on a sports team, or on a TV program, or on our Facebook account. What's his response then? Well, first of all, how infinitely stupid must we look? Like when we're nervous before the game, and we're angry during it, 
uh, and we're kind of sobbing and in tears afterwards. I mean, in, in the scope of the universe, we, we kind of look pretty ridiculous. And how perpetually ignorant we look when we have these finite, these limited, these short lives and we're spending every hour of every day accumulating more gadgets and TV channels and Facebook friends. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with gadgets, I have a fair few of my own and I like TV channels and I'm also on Facebook. These things are not wrong and sinful in and of themselves. They just are when they become ultimate, when they dominate our lives, when these are the things we're investing our whole lives in. And again, you might be thinking, well, who are you to say what sin is? I'm nobody. I'm just trying to tell you what the Bible says. And if you won't hear it from me if you won't hear it from the Bible. Uh, At least listen to the news headlines on any given day. It's like they're screaming at us that something is broken. I mean, our own culture is constantly yelling out at the top of its voice that something is intrinsically wrong with it. And then irony of ironies is constantly telling us you can fix it despite the fact that we haven't been able to yet. So what is God's just and right response to all of this? Well, the Bible tells us that he creates hell. Whether we like it or not, hell is a worthy response to our whole-scale rejection of the God who created the universe. Let's face it, if we choose to turn our back on God in this life, why shouldn't He turn His back on us in the life to come? But hell is insufficient in that it still doesn't create worshippers of God. No one, as far as I'm aware, is really ever excited about justice who's guilty. No, they love mercy instead. And so, hell isn't enough. Hell is insufficient. The problem is, how can God love and forgive and show mercy to people who insist on living their lives with no regard for Him? I'll tell you, that is what is of first importance. That is the most crucial question. That's the most significant problem facing us right now. Paul tells us here that Christ died for our sins to deal with this problem. He is the only person ever to have lived who was completely without sin, who was innocent in every way. And he chose to substitute himself for us. It's like the number goes up, we leave the field of play, he comes on in our place. He bore the punishment that we were due for our sin as he hung on the cross. But Paul doesn't stop there. He keeps going. Verse 3, for what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to 
the Scriptures. Now, there's a whole lot of speculation about whether Jesus actually died or not. I, I still contend that when you get beaten nearly to death and hung on a cross for at least eight hours, lungs filling up with blood, and then get stabbed in the heart underneath your ribcage by a spear, you don't just pop up two days later and convince everyone that you're as good as new. I'm just saying, but I'm not going to get into all the evidence for the resurrection today. We haven't really got time. I, I just want to leave you with Paul's defense of the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 5, he says, Jesus appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Uh, that's a euphemism for dying. It's not they just got bored during a sermon and dropped off. No, no. Uh, they, some have died. Most are still alive. Verse 7, then Jesus appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Paul is presenting this list of men and women who saw the resurrected Jesus as evidence that Jesus did indeed, did in fact rise from the dead. First up is Peter, one of the twelve disciples. Peter who never quite really figures it all out while Jesus is around. The, the one time he, he gets this flash of inspiration and says to Jesus, Jesus, you're the Messiah. You are God in the flesh. The next sentence, he blurts out something completely ridiculous. Jesus has to rebuke him. The, the one shot Peter had to fight he even blew that and just cut off a guy's ear instead of actually finishing him off. I mean, he talks big, never delivers. In the end, he's an outright coward. Just a few hours before the arrest of Jesus, he's, he's boasting. I mean, if it means going to prison, even to my death, Jesus, I will never betray you. So Jesus pats him on the head and goes, give me a break. I mean, I'm God. I know precisely how this is going to play out. By tomorrow morning, you'll have denied me three times. And Peter argues with him. This is kind of what I'm getting at. I mean, what's he doing? He, he's arguing with God over this. No, 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 not me. What do you know, Messiah? And then sure enough, three betrayals. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. Think about it. What could have possibly happened that turns this frightened, arrogant man into the father of the church, who in the end is no longer afraid, but allows himself to be crucified upside down for his face. Well, that's not even the most amazing one on this list to me. The amazing one on this list to me is James. Why would that be amazing? It's his brother. Is Jesus brother. And not only that, it is the brother who previously thought Jesus was deluded. What could have possibly happened to James that one moment he's going, my brother is crazy, and now all of a sudden he's worshipping him as God and is leading the church in Jerusalem, is willing to be martyred over all of this. I mean, what miraculous event could have made him go, it was true all along. I thought my brother was just being an idiot, but he was right all the time. And then as if that's not enough, Paul's going, listen, 
There are 500 people in Jerusalem who saw him, and the majority of them are still alive. If you don't believe this, go check it out. I'm not making this up. They're still alive. This is eyewitness stuff. That's not to mention Paul himself, who went from trying to slaughter the church, wipe it out completely, to planting new churches wherever he went. Why? Because he himself had encountered the risen Jesus. And so Paul is at pains for us to grasp that the thing of first importance is that Christ died for our sins. He was buried and then he was raised on the third day. Now most of the time, I think we tend to focus in on the importance of Christ's death. So what I want us to talk about for rest of this talk today is why his resurrection is so important. I want to show you what's occurring in the resurrection of Jesus. Then I want to try and show you what it means for you, what it means for me. I'm going to very quickly flip through three more passages, all of them written by the Apostle Paul. First up is Romans 4. I'm going to pick it up in verse 23. He says, the words, it was credited to him, him being Abraham, he's been talking about how Abraham had faith in God, and because of that, uh, it was credited to him as righteousness. He had right standing before God because of his faith. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He, he was delivered over to death for our sins. So, so Christ went to the cross because of our sins. Listen to the next line. And was then raised to life for our justification. A long word, a bit of a kind of religious jargony concept. Let me try and unpack it so you feel the force of this. At the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we find evidence that all of the wrath of God towards our sin was absorbed in Christ. We are now justified. It's just as if we had never sinned. In fact, it's even better than that. It's just as if we had lived the perfect, innocent, sinless life that Jesus lived. We have right standing now before God, that that there's not going to be another Jesus. There's no further need for sacrifice. Jesus says on the cross, it is finished. Jesus' death provides the grounds for God to justifies to deal with our sin. His resurrection vindicates Christ, freeing him from the influence of sin and providing us with the ongoing power to be victorious against sin as we live in union with Christ. Don't want you to miss this. Our right standing before God doesn't come from our good works doesn't come from our moral perfection, doesn't even come from attending church meetings like this. It is absolutely nothing to do with our performance. We stand justified, we stand right in front of God Almighty by Christ's performance. His sinless life and His sacrificial death in our place. And how can we be sure of this? 
That's where the resurrection comes in. It's the resurrection of Christ that proves that Jesus' work on the cross was sufficient. It worked. It's like if, if Jesus had stayed dead, we'd have been left wondering, did it actually do anything? That he rose again gives us all the evidence we need that he is God, that, that his Father was satisfied with his sacrifice for us, that the power of sin and hell and death are vanquished once and for all. Now maybe you get that. You're thinking, well, where's the news in all of this? I'm familiar with it. You're going, okay, Jesus died and rose again, we're justified, but what's it mean for you and me as we get into our cars a little later on and head home? What does this mean for us? Turn with me to Ephesians 1. Pick it up in verse 15. Paul says, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I've not stopped giving thanks for you remembering you in my prayers. Now, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Now, I know you're tired. I know you're kind of familiar with a lot of this stuff. I want you to try to get here with me. The same power, the same supernatural, God-saturated power that resurrected Jesus from the dead is now at work in those of us who believe. In the deepest parts of our being, the Holy Spirit of God right now is at work restoring and breaking down and rebuilding and healing and mending and empowering us. That the same power, the exact same power that was at work in Christ is now at work in us. Who? All of us? No, not all of us. Paul says, in those who believe, because most people don't run there, that they run to created things rather than to the creator of it all. They look to things that have no ultimate power to fix them. Believe me now or believe me later in 25, 30, 35 years of just struggling with the the same hidden, secret, cyclical sin. You are not going to be able to do it. You're not going to be able to overcome. You're not going to be able to break it in your own strength. You don't have the power in and of yourself to raise to life that which is dead. See, as Paul goes on to say later on in Ephesians, in chapter 2, all of us are born dead, all of us are born very, very broken. 
I know this because I've got children. Like from birth, they think they are worthy of everything. I want that. Get me that. Give me this. I want this now. Get me that now. Where did that selfishness come from? I blame their mother, but actually it's, <laughs> actually it's because they are born broken. So, moving swiftly on, you... She's not here, so it's fine. Don't tell her. <laughs> so, you're not going to be able to fix this. You're lust. You're not going to be able to fix it. Your bitterness. You're not going to be able to fix it. Your rage, your anger, that, that, that stuff that's been, kind of been following you around, those deviances that have followed you around. You don't possess the power of life and death. You cannot resurrect anything. But Christ can. That's why we don't celebrate us. That's why we don't glory in us. It's why we continually celebrate him and glory in him, because we can't. Anyone who boasts in themselves is a liar and deluded. We boast in the cross and in the cross alone. And now, the same power that was at work in raising Christ from the dead is at work in all of us who believe. It is such a great promise. I I wish we would run to it more. It is craziness not to run to it more. Why keep stoically battling on in our own power and strength when there is God's incomparably great power available for all who believe? I've got one more point, one more passage I want us to go to. But before doing that, I want to pray. I want to pray that right now you you would get some of this power, some of this strength from God. Heavenly Father, would you even now send your Spirit to us? Help us to, first of all, grasp this, that it wouldn't just be words kind of bombarding our mind, but that you would give us revelation, that the eyes of our heart might be enlightened in order that we might know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of your inglorious inheritance to us, and your incomparably great power for us who believe. Would you right now unleash your power upon us? Every person here who is battling to overcome a situation, a a temptation, that their past, something looming even in their future, I want to pray now for a release of power to them. That today would mark a change in our experience as we don't just try and fight in our own strength, but we draw strength from you, God. Thank you for this profound truth power that raised Jesus to life is available to us. Pray, help us draw on your power more and more, to run to you more and more, not to trust in ourselves, but to trust in you. I want to pray even as I keep speaking, Holy Spirit, that you would be very actively at work, opening our eyes to truth and empowering us to live in the good of it. Amen.
Okay, one more. Let's go to Romans 8. We're going to pick it up in verse 33. Paul says, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? I mean, it is God who justifies. You just hear that. He's going, who is going to bring a charge against God's elect, those God has chosen, when it's not their behavior that justifies them? No, it's God who does it. Verse 34, who then is the one who condemns? No one. I mean, Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is now at the right hand of God and is also interceding. He is praying for us. Who who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is one phenomenal text. Not, not only is all the power of the resurrection now available to those who believe, but now for those who believe, because of the resurrection, there is no condemnation for us, and nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Now, if you're thinking, well, is that good news or not? Let me tell you why this is such good news. Growing up in church, I feel like I got lied to a lot, because I was kind of given this picture of perfection that was supposed to occur as soon as I became a Christian, and so I repeated the prayer, dear Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner, please forgive me, amen, and I was baptized, and I was loving the Lord. But what happens when you love the Lord, and there's still this lust in your heart that won't go away? Oh, what do you do then? Because where I was, I didn't feel it was safe to talk about that, because everybody was so busy pretending that they didn't struggle with that anymore. Like, everyone else just kind of got saved and fluttered about in Shekinah glory for the rest of their life, and I was still stuck down there in the mud. So, like, when do I get to fly? What happens when you fall in love with Jesus, but there's still some bitterness, or some anger, or some deceit in there? What happens when you fall in love with Jesus, but you still have some of these issues going on in your life? You see, the church kind of implied that I wouldn't have those issues anymore once I became a Christian. I mean, that was the whole premise and framework of the gospel. Get saved because then you won't do this, 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 and this. And I got saved and I kept on doing this, 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 and this. So then where am I supposed to go? Because apparently Jesus doesn't work for me. Praise God for Romans 8. It's like God says, it's going to take a while to work through this stuff, but I'm not letting you go in the meantime. Oh, we will get there. I mean, I started this, so I will finish this. I will be faithful to the end, so don't give up. 
Keep walking. Keep confessing your sin as you go. Keep pressing deeper into me. And to help you out, find some Christ-loving believers. Do life with them. Join a church. Be encouraged in a church. Get help. Get guidance. But please, don't give up. And I won't let you go in the interim. I won't let you go. I want you to see that there is no one who can condemn you. I don't. And if I don't, no one can. Who will even bring a charge against you? You are mine. I've, I've paid the price for your forgiveness. Trust me. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about those voices inside us that constantly condemn us. You can't love Jesus. I mean, look at that lust, look at that jealousy, look at that anger you have that you can't get rid of. And because of that, there's no way Jesus could ever really love you. God's going, you're listening to those voices? You're listening to the devil? Don't you know, I'm going to kill him one day? I'm going to crush him, torment him forever? Wouldn't listen to him. Wouldn't listen to his voice. Who will bring a charge against God's elect, God's chosen one? No, it is God who justifies. Ultimately, your hope has never been in your works. It has always been about Christ's finished work on the cross. And now the same power which raised him to life is available to empower you to live out who you are. The great accuser has no authority to condemn you. You have complete authority to say no to him, say no to temptation, say no to his accusations. Are you beginning to grasp why this is of first importance? That Christ was crucified, he was buried, he was raised. Even now, he's interceding, he's praying for you. No condemnation now in him. Now, I know many of you believe this, but maybe some of you don't. In the end, Jesus, the church, these ideas not designed to condemn you, they're to set you free from condemnation. That's why Jesus died. That's why we're here, not because we think we are better than you, but because we know we're not. So we're not trying to point you into, hey, do life our way. Don't do life our way. We're trying to point you to Jesus. We're trying to point you to the cross. We're trying to say, His way it's the way of the cross. That's my message to you today. And it's of first importance. Does science disprove the creation account? We can talk another day. Why can't I sleep with my boyfriend or my girlfriend? We can talk about it. Let's do it later though. What about other religions? Let's not get distracted by that right now. Why does God allow suffering? All right, we'll talk, but not today. Because right now, the only thing that matters is that Christ was crucified 
for the forgiveness of sins. And that he was buried in the ground because he was dead. And the incomparably great power of God the Father brought him back to life again. And that same power is now available to those of us who believe. And for those who believe, there'll be no condemnation and no judgment. Nothing be able to separate us from the love of Christ Jesus. I'll invite you to stand. We're going to pray, and then in a few moments, you're going to get to worship this wonderful risen Jesus for a prolonged period of time.